0: All right, we are going to be looking at Psalm number 85 this morning. So you're welcome to uh, flip over in your worship folder. We got it printed there. You're welcome to pick up a Bible and look at that. Um, And I want to go straight to our passage and read it before, and then I'll give some more words of introduction after that. So uh, let's go uh, before the Lord and read his word. Psalm number 85. 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath, you turned away, you turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Or will you prolong your anger to all generations? And will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness we meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, let me pray for us. Father, once again, we humbly ask that you would send your spirit and you would revive us. You would do a work uh, through your word this morning. Uh, please be with me. Help me to speak faithfully and true. And be with all of us that you would open up our hearts that we might see you clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We are, the reason we're looking at this psalm, you see the title, title, of the trouble of corporate sin. And this is continuing with this theme of Psalms for Days of Trouble. Um, and we've been using the Psalms because of how realistic they are. Uh, they depict a great variety of circumstances that the people of God may and do face uh, that are troubling, and they're helping us sort through that. So we're looking at uh, a, revi- a variety of different uh, circumstances. And this is kind of a companion to what Adam preached on last week. Where uh, Adam was looking at the passage that he looked at last week was looking at more the problem of individual sin with our own bad choices, uh, with the bondage that comes from our sin. And um, he talked to us about the gratefulness that we that we can have because of Christ's redemption, uh, despite our sin. And what I mean by this this morning, what I mean by this term corporate sin is actually something that's very, very simple. It's just what happens. Sometimes we're faced with the issue of ourselves when we are convicted of our own sin. And sometimes we look around and feel like um, that the issues that we see are belong to the whole community. And what do we do then? Uh, what do we do when this is when sin seems to be a widespread thing? Um, how do we process that and look through it? And that's what this psalm is, is helping us to do and is going to help us to unpack and respond to. And uh, it might seem this is a cruel time to dig into this because in some ways we're all on crisis, in a kind of a crisis. So we're tired of COVID. We're weary from the news. Um, decision uh, fatigue has been a real thing. But I think this is something that's probably on all of our minds anyways. Like in any given week, um, then we will read or hear something about uh, as we are struggling to understand issues of race, uh, we are struggling to understand issues of um, power, um, use in the church, uh, issues of gender. We might hear things about, we might lament um, the political situation, how one party or the other might be Overly married to a political ideal, and we lament of those things. Um, Materialism, those kinds of things. Like, these are things that are always around um, that we might hear a lot, and we might uh, really grieve over and regret these things. And one thing a time of crisis actually does for us that is good is it, it gives us an opportunity that we might come to the Lord anew, and we might see things differently in a new light. Uh, we might invite him in to examine us, um, that we might grow. And this could actually be an opportunity where we are led closer to him, even though it feels like a crisis. So that's why we're we looking at this psalm this morning. And, and what this psalm depicts, um, it doesn't really give us the actual situation of what the people of God, of what the, in the iniquity is. But there is probably a sense that the loss of a sense of joy... Um, of God's pleasure, the enjoyment of God's pleasure in his people is missing. And there is a yearning, um, whether God's pleasure is there um, or not, that we would be able to experience that again, that we would be able to rejoice in his pleasure over the church. And if I asked you the question, would you say, if you look around, you could look at our church, you could look at, you know, our, our cities, churches, nation, world, whatever, how would you answer that question? if I asked you, do you feel like God is pleased with the state of his people right now? Uh, I'll tell you how one person answered it. I had a friend I used to play uh, trivia with regularly when I lived in South Carolina. Uh, And you know, those Jesus statues where he's standing here with his hands out like this kind of welcoming, or he would say that, you know, he's not welcoming anybody here. He is like, what is going on down here? Like, can you believe these things that I am witnessing? Um, and that was his take. Like when he would, he would look at, he was not a believer, when he would look at the church, then it's just like, what, what the heck is up with this people? And you might feel that way and you might not. Um, but this is, um, I'm sure that this is not an idea that is too far from your mind. And um, let me read this from Genesis chapter 18. These are God's words to Abraham, uh, one of our patriarchs um, of the faith. And he is describing this work um, um, of this identity of this people. He says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah when they're standing on a hill overlooking it. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And if that's the case, how are we doing? Like, how is that going for uh, for his people? And we're gonna look at this in a couple ways. This psalm is going to lead us to struggle to struggle with these things. Uh, I've got three points, which is really two points. I know you've all got kids and I'm very sensitive to that. Uh, the first half we're gonna look at the foundation of God's people, who they are. And then the second half, I've got two points where we're going to look at what is the work uh, that he calls us to, and what is the expectation um, that we have in in taking up this work. And that's how we're going to look for go through this, and that's because that's how this psalm is set up. Uh, we're looking at the foundation on on the upon which. God's people rest. Look at these first few verses. They are looking back in the past tense of how the Lord had dealt with his people in the past. He says, "Lord, you were favorable to your land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin, you withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger." So is depicting a time when the Lord was favorable. Um, even to the land in a holistic sense. And this is not just the absence of sin. This is actually a divine favor that he has bestowed upon this people that he is delighted in. And how did that favor come about? Not because of who they are, but as an act of mercy and forgiveness to his people. This is the foundation of what the people of God are, who we are, that we are a redeemed people, we are a people who only exist because of redemption and because of the forgiveness of sin and God's bestowing of mercy upon this people. Um, you know, Moses got this. Uh, if you remember the story of when um, is God made a covenant with his people and they decided to worship a, another god, a golden calf instead, and, and Moses is interceding on behalf of the people and he says this to God. He says... Um, you know, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is what God has said to him. And Moses said to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from this place. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He so said that distinguishing factor is the Lord's gracious, gracious presence with his people. It is that forgiveness and that is mercy. That is who we are. And that is what we are founded upon. And just to take another little survey, I'm getting this from this word glory you see in in verse 9, this longing for glory to dwell in the land. That's a theme that was picked up uh, particularly in the book of Ezekiel that comes up again again and again. Um, In Ezekiel chapter 10, have you ever read the first few chapters of Ezekiel? It is far out. I mean, there's some weird stuff that happens in this chapter. There are these like giant wheels covered in eyes rolling around on the earth. I've always thought it would be interesting to get really tripped up on LSD and then read this chapter and see what happens. Um, That's a joke, by the way. Um, But what's happening here in this is that um, the glory of God, the thing that made them distinct because of their continual idolatry, it gets up and it departs away from the temple. As the people are sent into exile. The dwelling of the Lord has gone. The glory is not not dwelling among the people anymore. But what do we see happen? If we go through the book, we just read this in Ezekiel chapter 36. After all of this discipline that is given to his people, we start to get these really interesting promises where God says that I will give you a new heart. And not a heart of stone like you've had, but a heart of flesh. And I will put my own spirit within you to dwell inside of you. It'd be interesting. Like, that is an interesting promise. And the very next chapter after that, you might be familiar with, um, is the story of the valley of dry bones. Where Ezekiel is led out to this valley and is full of dry bones. And God asks him, can these dry bones live? What do you think? And these dry bones, they're representing the people of God, like in that state. You know, something that cannot come alive again. And in breathing his spirit upon them, that these dry bones, they get up and they put together and they take on flesh and they live. And this is a picture of what God can do and what he would do with his people. And we get to the end of the book and then we see that the glory of God comes back to the temple and we have a glorious vision of the future of God again dwelling with his people. And as we are looking at this in our position, um, then one of the things that you might not have caught when we read John chapter one is that at the very end, when the word became, dw- became flesh, that is Jesus Christ, and he made his dwelling among the people. That this is a word dwelling is like dwelling in a tent. And that this was the tabernacle where God dwelt among his people, that his presence in his son, Yahweh himself, has come down and he has made his dwelling among his rebellious people once again through Jesus. It is, this, is, this, this is part of the, the answer to some of these, to these promises and this hope and this expectation that was going to come, that despite the people's straying, that God would make a way. And He made a way through His own Son. And through His own Son, His Holy Spirit has come and has made His dwelling among His people even now. That is what makes us distinct. And that is our hope. So the found- when we think about ourselves as the people of God, the foundation that is built upon is not everything being right. But it is this promise of being the redeemed people. Of having our sins forgiven because... God has made good on his promises and he has sent his son for us. That's our foundation that we have to. And what that does, that's not only good news, but that orients us. You see what that does in the psalm and where it goes. Rather than going to despair, then we have these calls to God himself to restore us again. O oh God of our salvation and put away your indignation towards us. It turns us to him. It is a humbling action of looking to him again for hope, if that is true. So what does that mean for us as we go on? If that's the foundation that we are built upon as a people, um, it changes a couple things in our relationship um, with other people, particularly because of the nature of our relationship with God. We can ask ourselves, even when we think about our adversaries and those we are the most frustrated with, even here, it causes us to ask this question, like, is the solution here to criticize and control all other people and bring them under our power so they do what we want? Or is the solution instead to intercede on their behalf for God's divine favor and his forgiveness? And through that is where our hope comes. Or how often do we stop and... I mean, evaluate our lives and ask God to come into this conversation of where we are finding hope, what our idols might be, those kinds of things, inviting him to ask and actually asking us, will you revive us again? Would you give us a new kind of life uh, that we would not get otherwise? Um, These kinds of things. Uh, Let me move on from there and talk about this work. Um, so if this is the foundation that, for, that, uh, that our relationship with God is built upon, what does that require of us? And we go here, or what work does God give us in this? Um, look at verse 8. Uh, there would be a, there, if you're looking at your Bible, there might be a section break, a stanza break, before we get to this point. And here's what it says. It says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, and let them not turn back to folly, and surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And what does this mean? There's an aspect of wisdom in this. You see the word folly. This is a word that comes up again in the, in the wisdom literature. And also, I mean, we're talking about the fear of the Lord. And when we're talking about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And so we are, we are invited into this um, to participate and embrace uh, God's way, his wisdom that he has given to his people. But how does it, what does that look like? In this aspect, ask, asking that God would hear, um, there is an element of patience in this that is a releasing control over the result. And that rather being able to control uh, what happens with the people, there is instead there is a patience and there is a trust that let me hear what the Lord will speak. Let me hear what he will do. In his own timing and his own way, um, and as it moves us, it gives us this posture um, of patience and waiting. And Then, rather than taking control of these things, then it gives us something very tangible and particular in our own time, which is wisdom. And that these there's just a few things here. Like, if one, it gives us who what voice are we listening to? Uh, there will be all kinds of voices that would be vying for attention and vying for um, to decide who we are and what we are like and what we should do. But yet there's only one that is important here. It says, let me the Lord speak. Let me hear what the Lord has to say. And you know, when you were a kid, um, you would be arguing with your siblings. And there was one voice that would trump all of the other voices in that situation. And that was the voice of Mama who didn't even have to speak all that loud. But as soon as you heard that one voice, it changed everything, and you knew you had better stop and pay attention. There are all kinds of voices that are vying for what life should look like, but wisdom is from God. He is the, he is the one audience. He is the one who gets to say. Um, but in addition to that, um, there is a self-examination that I think is also at work here. Um, In asking what it is the Lord will speak, uh, but let them not turn back to folly, and surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. And so I think what this would do for the people of God in reading these things is it lends us to evaluate and ask us these questions like, is this true of me? Who do I really fear? If salvation comes from the Lord and comes to those who fear him, then who is it that is the one who is driving me? Who am I most afraid of? What are the consequences that I'm most afraid of um, uh, or, or others? So there's, there's this self-examination that's being invited, that we are being invited into. And here's the point that I'm trying to drive at here. That the life that we are called to is much more mundane often than we think. It is we have been given a covenant relationship with our Father that has stipulations. He has given us worship of Him. He has given us His law. He has given us His wisdom. And He has called us to pay attention and to persevere and to walk in those things. If it is a different voice, a different fear that is driving us, um, then there is a lot of anxiety and there are a lot of options um, that would be pulling down upon us. But if... This is in the Lord's hands. If He is the one at work, and He is the one who has called us to follow Him and to walk in His way, then these everyday things we do every day and every week, they really matter. This participation in worship really matters, even though it doesn't seem like it. Parenting in the Lord, raising our kids, really matters, even though it's not ideal and it's difficult. That this is, that we are doing these things because we have been brought into a relationship with our Father, who is our Redeemer and who is the one who is at work through us. Our calling is to follow Him in what He has revealed to us. That's the work. Lastly, what is this outcome that we can expect uh, from this life that we are being invited into? We're getting here these last verses and. I think the easiest way to say this is that there are some things that cannot be said and explained in a scientific way. They can only be explained through poetry. This is a really beautiful section. Look at these words that are said, um, starting in verse ten: that steadfast love and faithfulness they meet together, righteousness and peace they kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down to the sky. There is a perfect harmony in these things, is promise to look forward to. And yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. There is a sure hope for the people of God. This is a full story that started back with his redemption that is going somewhere in particular, that despite whatever disarray uh, the people might appear to be in, in any one time, that there is a sure hope that can only be described with poetry. It is a perfect union with no conflict, um, with only good in um, a holistic kind of joy that even extends to the land. And how does that come about? In verse 13, the righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And again, Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life of God, who is the righteousness of God given to us, the one who we are united with and who we walk in, the one who carries us to the end. So what I think we are led to do in this psalm and looking at these things around us is to consider who we are. But above all else, I think this is a very humbling experience that this should be leading us in. It draws us to our knees. It turns our eyes off of these things that are around us And it looks to our Father, our Savior, who has been given to us. And I think what a practical application of this is that it should be leading us to pray. That the Lord will revive us. If God can speak to dry bones and say that can these live? And that through His Spirit, He can put flesh on these bones. What can He do? What can He do for His church? What can He do for His people? And we have just a picture of what that would look like. So I want to lead us now and just close there and pray. Uh, pray that we would long for the spirit to work in our midst and that we would wonder about what he can do even in us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, would you spin your spirit and do a work among your people here? Would you revive us? Would you call us back to yourself? Would you give us hope? Would you give us wisdom that we may follow you? but that we would drop to our knees and that we would look to you um, as the beginner of our faith and the one who will complete the work that you have started in us. In Jesus' name, amen.